Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 74 The Sperm Whale's Head Contrasted View Here now are two great whales, laying their heads together. Let us join them, and lay together our own. Of the grand order of folio leviathans, the sperm whale and the right whale are by far the most noteworthy. They are the only whales regularly hunted by man. To the Nantucketer, they present the two extremes of all the known varieties of the whale. As the external difference between them is mainly observable in their heads— and, as a head of each, is this moment hanging from the Pequod's side, and as we may freely go from one to the other by merely stepping across the deck, where, I should like to know, will you obtain a better chance to study practical cytology than here? In the first place, you are struck by the general contrast between these heads. Both are massive enough in all conscience— but there is a certain mathematical symmetry in the sperm whales which the right whales sadly lacks. There is more character in the sperm whale's head. As you behold it, you involuntarily yield the immense superiority to him in point of pervading dignity. In the present instance, too, this dignity is heightened by the pepper-and-salt color of his head at the summit, giving token of advanced age and large experience. In short, he is what the fishermen technically call a gray-headed whale. Let us now note what is least dissimilar in these heads, namely the two most important organs, the eye and the ear. Far back on the other side of the head and low down, near the angle of either whale's jaw, if you narrowly search, you will at last see a lashless eye, which you would fancy to be a young colt's eye, so out of all proportion is it to the magnitude of the head. Now, from this peculiar sideway position of the whale's eyes, it is plain that he can never see an object which is exactly a head, no more than he can one exactly a stern. In a word, the position of the whale's eyes corresponds to that of a man's ears, and you may fancy, for yourself, how it would fare with you did you sideways survey objects through your ears. You would find that you could only command some thirty degrees of vision in advance of the straight sideline of sight, and about thirty more behind it. If your bitterest foe were walking straight towards you, with dagger uplifted in broad day, you would not be able to see him any more than if he were stealing upon you from behind. In a word, you would have two backs, so to speak, but at the same time also two fronts, side fronts. For what is it that makes the front of a man? What indeed but his eyes? 
Moreover, while in most other animals that I can now think of, the eyes are so planted as imperceptibly to blend their visual power, so as to produce one picture and not two to the brain, the peculiar position of the whale's eyes, effectually divided as they are by many cubic feet of solid head, which towers between them like a great mountain, separating two lakes and valleys. This, of course, must wholly separate the impressions which each independent organ imparts. The whale, therefore, must see one distinct picture on this side and another distinct picture on that side, while all between must be profound darkness and nothingness to him. Man may, in effect, be said to look out on the world from a sentry box with two joined sashes for his window. But with the whale, these two sashes are separately inserted, making two distinct windows, but sadly impairing the view. This peculiarity of the whale's eyes is a thing always to be borne in mind in the fishery, and to be remembered by the reader in some subsequent scenes. A curious and most puzzling question might be started concerning this visual matter as touching the leviathan, but I must be content with a hint. So long as a man's eyes are open in the light, the act of seeing is involuntary. That is, he cannot then help mechanically seeing whatever objects are before him. Nevertheless, anyone's experience will teach him that though he can take in an indiscriminating sweep of things at one glance, it is quite impossible for him, attentively, and completely to examine any two things, however large or however small, at one and the same instant of time. Never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other. But if you now come to separate these two objects and surround each by a circle of profound darkness, then, in order to see one of them, in such a manner as to bring your mind to bear on it, the other will be utterly excluded from your contemporary consciousness. How is it, then, with the whale? True, both his eyes and themselves must simultaneously act. But is his brain so much more comprehensive, combining, and subtle than man's, that he can at the same moment of time attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him, and the other in an exactly opposite direction? If he can, then is it as marvelous a thing in him as if a man were able simultaneously to go through the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid? Nor, strictly investigated, is there any incongruity in this comparison. It may be but an idle whim, but it has always seemed to me that the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats, the timidity and liability to queer frights, so common to such whales. I think all this indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition, in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. But the ear of the whale is full as curious as the eye. If you are an entire stranger to their race, you might hunt over these two heads for hours and never discover that organ. The ear has no external leaf whatever, and into the hole itself you can hardly insert a quill, so wondrously minute is it. It is lodged a little behind the eye. With respect to their ears, this important difference is to be observed between the sperm whale and the right. 
While the ear of the former has an external opening, that of the latter is entirely and evenly covered over with a membrane, so as to be quite imperceptible from without. Is it not curious that so vast a being as the whale should see the world through so small an eye, and hear the thunder through an ear which is smaller than a hare's? But if his eyes were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope, and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. Why, then, do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it. Let us now, with whatever levers and steam engines we have at hand, cant over the sperm whale's head, that it may lie bottom up, then, ascending by a ladder to the summit, have a peep down the mouth. And were it not that the body is now completely separated from it, with a lantern we might descend into the great Kentucky mammoth cave of his stomach. But let us hold on here by this tooth and look about us where we are. What a really beautiful and chaste-looking mouth, from floor to ceiling, lined, or rather papered, with a glistening white membrane, glossy as bridal satins. "'But come out now and look at this portentous lower jaw, "'which seems like the long, narrow lid of an immense snuff-box, "'with the hinge at one end instead of one side. "'If you pry it up so as to get it overhead "'and expose its rows of teeth, "'it seems a terrific portcullis. "'And such, alas, it proves to many a poor white in the fishery, "'upon whom these spikes fall with impaling force.' But far more terrible is it to behold, when fathoms down in the sea, you see some sulky whale floating there suspended with his prodigious jaw, some fifteen feet long, hanging straight down at right angles, with his body, for all the world like a ship's jib-boom. This whale is not dead. He is only dispirited, out of sorts, perhaps, hypochondriac, and so supine that the hinges of his jaw have relaxed, "'leaving him there in that ungainly sort of plight, "'a reproach to all his tribe, "'who must, no doubt, imprecate lockjaws upon him. "'In most cases this lower jaw, "'being easily unhinged by a practiced artist, "'is disengaged and hoisted on deck "'for the purpose of extracting the ivory teeth "'and furnishing a supply of that hard white whalebone "'with which the fishermen fashion all sorts of curious articles, "'including canes, umbrella stalks, and handles to riding whips. "'With a long, weary hoist, the jaw is dragged on board as if it were an anchor, "'and when the proper time comes some few days after the other work, "'Quiqueg, Dagu, and Tashtigo, being all accomplished dentists, "'are set to drawing teeth. "'With a keen cutting spade, Quiqueg lances the gums,' Then the jaws lash down to ring bolts, and a tackle being rigged from aloft, they drag out these teeth, as Michigan oxen drag stumps of old oaks out of wild woodlands. They are generally forty-two teeth in all, and old whales much worn down but undecayed, nor filled after artificial fashion. The jaws afterwards sawn into slabs and piled away like joists for building houses. Chapter 75 The Right Whale's Head Contrasted View Crossing the deck, let us now have a good long look at the right whale's head. As in general shape, 
The noble sperm whale's head may be compared to a Roman war chariot, especially in front, where it is so broadly rounded. So, at a broad view, the right whale's head bears a rather inelegant resemblance to a gigantic galeotoed shoe. Two hundred years ago, an old Dutch voyager likened its shape to that of a shoemaker's last. And in the same last, or shoe, that old woman of the nursery tale with the swarming brood might very comfortably be lodged, she and all her progeny. But as you come nearer to this great head, it begins to assume different aspects, according to your point of view. If you stand on its summit and look at these two F-shaped spout holes, you would take the whole head for an enormous base viola, and these spiracles, the apertures in its sounding board. Then again, if you fix your eye upon this strange crested comb-like incrustation on the top of the mass, this green barnacled thing, which the Greenlanders call the crown, and the southern fishers the bonnet of the right whale. Fixing your eyes solely on this, you would take the head for the trunk of some huge oak with a bird's nest in its crotch. At any rate, when you watch those live crabs that nestle here on this bonnet, such an idea will be almost sure to occur to you. Unless, indeed, your fancy has been fixed by the technical term crown, also bestowed upon it in which case you will take great interest in thinking how this mighty monster is actually a diademed king of the sea, whose green crown has been put together for him in this marvelous manner. But if this whale be a king, he is a very sulky-looking fellow to grace a diadem. Look at that hanging lower lip. What a huge sulk and pout is there. A sulk and pout by carpenter's measurement about twenty feet long and five feet deep, a sulk and pout that will yield you some five hundred gallons of oil and more. A great pity now that this unfortunate whale should be hair-lipped. The fissure is about a foot across. Probably the mother, during an important interval, was sailing down the Peruvian coast when earthquakes caused the beach to gape. Over this lip, as over a slippery threshold, we now slide into the mouth. Upon my word, were I at Mackinac, I should take this to be the inside of an Indian wigwam. Good Lord, is this the road that Jonah went? The roof is about twelve feet high and runs to a pretty sharp angle, as if there were a regular ridge pole there, while these ribbed, arched, hairy sides present us with those wondrous, half-vertical, scimitar-shaped slats of whalebone, say three hundred on a side which, depending from the upper part of the head or crown bone, form those Venetian blinds, which have elsewhere been cursily mentioned. The edges of these bones are fringed with hairy fibers, through which the right whale strains the water, and in whose intricacies he retains the small fish when open-mouthed he goes through the seas of Brit in feeding time. In the central blinds of bone, as they stand in their natural order, there are certain curious marks, curves, hollows, and ridges whereby some whalemen calculate the creature's age as the age of an oak by its circular rings. Though the certainty of this criterion is far from demonstrable, yet it has the savor of analogical probability. At any rate, if we yield to it, we must grant a far greater age to the right whale than at first glance will seem reasonable. In old times, there seemed to have prevailed the most curious fancies concerning these blinds. 
One voyager in purchase calls them the wondrous whiskers inside of the whale's mouth. Another, hog's bristles. A third old gentleman in Haklut uses the following elegant language. There are about 250 fins growing on each side of his upper chop, which arch over his tongue on each side of his mouth. This reminds us that the right whale really has a sort of whisker, or rather a mustache, consisting of a few scattered white hairs on the upper part of the outer end of the lower jaw. Sometimes these tufts impart a rather brigandish expression to his otherwise solemn countenance. As everyone knows, these same hog's bristles, fins, whiskers, blinds, or whatever you please, furnish the ladies their busks and other stiffening contrivances. But in this particular, the demand has long been on the decline. It was in Queen's Anne time that the bone was in its glory, the farthingale being then all the fashion. And as those ancient dames moved about gaily, though in the jaws of the whale, as you may say, even so in a shower, with the like thoughtlessness, do we nowadays fly under the same jaws for protection, the umbrella being a tent spread over the same bone. But now, forget all about blinds and whiskers for a moment, and standing in the right whale's mouth, look round you afresh. Seeing all these colonnades of bones so methodically ranged about, would you not think you were inside of the great Harlem organ, and gazing upon its thousand pipes? For a carpet to the organ we have a rug of the softest turkey, the tongue which is glued, as it were, to the floor of the mouth. It is very fat and tender, and apt to tear in pieces and hoisting it on deck. This particular tongue, now before us, at a passing glance, I should say it was a six-barreler. That is, it will yield you about that amount of oil. Ere this, you must have plainly seen the truth of what I started with, that the sperm whale and the right whale have almost entirely different heads. To sum up, then, in the right whales there is no great well of sperm, no ivory teeth at all, no long, slender mandible of a lower jaw, like the sperm whales. Nor in the sperm whale are there any of those blinds of bone, no huge lower lip, and scarcely anything of a tongue. Again, the right whale has two external spout holes, the sperm whale, only one. Look your last now on these venerable hooded heads while they yet lie together, for one will soon sink unrecorded in the sea, the other will not be very long in following. Can you catch the expression of the sperm whales there? It is the same he died with, only some of the longer wrinkles in the forehead seem now faded away. I think his broad brow to be full of a prairie-like placidity, born of a speculative indifference as to death. But mark the other's head's expression. See that amazing lower lip, pressed by accident against the vessel's side, so as firmly to embrace the jaw. Does not this whole head seem to speak of an enormous practical resolution in facing death? This right whale I take to have been a stoic. The sperm whale, a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in his latter years. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.